Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by Morgan Stanley. Today is Monday, February 8th. Tampa Bay is up, Kansas City is down, and we're focused on the next big thing in social media. Social media began with text, uh, Facebook status updates, tweets, LinkedIn job postings. It then extended to photos and videos via sites like Instagram and Snapchat. But the next social medium might be the original one, voice. Late last winter, just as the pandemic was really getting underway, a new mobile app called Clubhouse appeared. At first it was invite only, reserved for Silicon Valley elites, and it was audio only. The way it works is that a user would create a room focused on a particular topic and then invite a few other people to actively participate in the conversation. Everyone else in the room would listen, although they had the ability to, quote, raise their hands, at which point the moderator could either invite them to participate or ignore them. And it's not just replicating tech conferences or giving fantasy football advice. On Christmas, for example, a 40-person cast used Clubhouse to debut a live version of the Lion King musical. Today, Clubhouse is still invite-only, but the audience has expanded significantly. It claimed two weeks ago to have 2 million weekly active users, and that was before high-profile Clubhouse discussions involving Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Clubhouse also hit the real big tech validation of being blocked in China and of being copied by legacy social media companies like Twitter. So we want to go deeper into what Clubhouse is, why it matters, and where it goes from here with power user Katie Stanton, a former Twitter and Google executive who made an early investment in Clubhouse through her venture capital firm, Moxie Ventures. That conversation in 15 seconds. We are joined now by Katie Jacobs Stanton, the founder and general partner of Moxie Ventures. Katie, let's start here. You are an investor in Clubhouse. We should get that out of the way up front. In general, what is missing from your perspective or was missing in the social media landscape that an audio platform like Clubhouse is filling? I don't know if we knew that something was missing, but when we saw it, when we heard it, we knew we needed it, if that makes sense. I think Clubhouse launched at a really important time more than anything. So it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. There was so much uncertainty. Everyone was stuck at home. And it kind of solved this need for a human connection that all of a sudden you could kind of pop in at any time and have a conversation with people you knew, people who were maybe one or two degrees away from you, um, or somebody who is really smart on a particular subject like COVID or vaccinations or how pandemics work and what is a pandemic. So I think it just was something that connected all of us at a really important time. Katie, there was a piece recently by tech writer Will Aremis where he called Clubhouse the anti-Twitter. And his basic conceit was that on Twitter, no matter who starts a conversation, anyone can get involved with it to a certain extent. Whereas on Clubhouse, the moderator has to agree to, quote, bring you up on stage and the vast majority of people cannot participate. Is that a good framing of Clubhouse as the anti-Twitter? That's interesting. Um, this is the first time I've heard <laughs> the expression anti-Twitter, the anti-Twitter. Um, I can see they're obviously very different. Um, you know, one is audio, one is written, one is very like, you know, public, lots of people can engage. The other one that you're almost forced to listen. Um, and so I think that is, you know, just very different. And, you know, personally, I love both products. Audio obviously has been around for a while, including on mobile phones. And you and I are speaking on a podcast. Podcasting has taken off in the last couple of years. Is 
Clubhouse, from your perspective, the next iteration of podcasting or the next iteration of social media or both? Yeah, I think um, it's a little bit of everything. And I mean, audio is the oldest social medium, right? Like we've always been talking, we've always been listening. So I do think it's so fascinating that all of a sudden we have this massive audio app. Like why didn't this exist before? We had different versions of it, you know, to your point that we had podcasts and we had radio and all these other things. But, um, but Clubhouse just kind of I know, brought together lots of the best pieces of um, social conversations, audio conversations, live conversations, again, at a, a very important and, and unusual time. Clubhouse announced a couple of weeks ago, maybe that they're going to start paying some creators, you know, help folks who are organizing rooms monetize, just like we've seen Instagram and Snapchat and, and other social media companies do. Do you believe we are going to see kind of micro economies come out of Clubhouse? And do you expect that advertising will be a piece of that or will this all be direct from creator to consumer? Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly all the monetization plans. Um, so I'm speaking on behalf of Katie, <laughs> not the company. But um, but I've heard Paul in um, some of the uh, Clubhouse town halls talk about that. And I love this idea. I think it's exactly right. I think he's learning from, you know, some of the mistakes that other networks have made in the past by not rewarding creators. Um, so I think the idea of making, putting the creators first in terms of the power, the tools, and ultimately the monetization is a great idea and doing that as early as possible. Um, and so I think we'll see a lot of interesting use cases and it'll evolve and it'll change and they'll figure out what works and what doesn't work. But I, I think this model is really um, fascinating and I think it's gonna be really important to a lot of creators. Is that the future of social media? Uh, there was a clubhouse room on Saturday night and Mark Andreessen uh, was on there in part and he talked about how from his perspective, the internet creative economy has changed, right? From the original internet where there was no money at all because there was no money at all to advertising. And now he views it kind of as a direct to consumer model and, and that advertising was a detour. So whether that be potentially Clubhouse or OnlyFans or Substack or things like that, could you foresee advertising being in Clubhouse or do you think it just jumps right over that? Which is the podcasting model, of course. Yeah, I mean, my guess is that it jumps right over it. I mean, because you don't necessarily need it. I mean, and the idea that you're rewarding the creators of content, I mean, like Substack may be doing and like others may be doing podcasters like you're probably doing. I hope there's a really great ad in this podcast, by the way. <laughs> there is. They are a great sponsor. Thank you, Morgan Stanley. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a great model. It's a scalable model. And it's something that's going to you know work as the company goes global. Right. As you know, we're seeing lots of different types of people from around the world joining the conversations, finding those relevant types of um, creators and monetizing and, and rewarding them for creating that content is going to be a great way to scale the business. When Clubhouse launched, and still actually, but when it launched, it was a relatively small number of people who were able to access it kind of in its initial beta, mostly kind of techies, basically Silicon Valley folks. It's continued to expand. I know there are now millions of people on the platform, but it remains invite only. Was the invitation model, which actually reminds me a little bit of Facebook in the early days when it was only on a couple different college campuses and it expanded, was that a smart marketing strategy? In other words, create scarcity or was it just a byproduct of the fact that they weren't going to be able to scale that fast and it would have crashed if they had just opened the floodgates? Maybe a little bit of both, but you know, I think it's brilliant. I mean, the idea that you get this personal invitation to come to this party online and I think what's also brilliant about it is that you get this notification when the person that you've invited has joined. And so you're like, well, I just invited, invited Dan to, you know, Clubhouse. He just joined. 
I'm going to come in and say hi. And then you and I are in this room and maybe someone else who may know you also joins this room. And we actually walk through the product. And it's like if you go to a party, right, you don't know anybody. And all of a sudden, you know, someone sees you and they introduce you to other people. That's a very warm and inviting experience. So I think it's really brilliant. I'm actually shocked that no one has actually done it before. Um, And so I think it's been a really elegant way to build community, build understanding of the product and help it scale. One of the criticisms, particularly recent criticisms of Clubhouse has been that if I, as a Clubhouse user, decide to block you, Katie, you now cannot access any of the conversations I'm in, even if I'm not the primary moderator. I might be like a tertiary or, or, you know, the 10th person on the call. That was created in part to prevent harassment, but it's also being viewed by some as exclusionary. Your thoughts? I haven't been part of that before. So thankfully, I haven't been obnoxious enough that someone's blocked me. (laughs) So I haven't experienced that firsthand. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think like it's good that Clubhouse reacted to bad behavior very quickly and they developed a zero tolerance policy very quickly because these things can get out of hand, as we've seen on other platforms and networks. So I see like how it can be a really lousy experience as well. Like what if you got blocked for just like, you know, saying something kind of casual. Um, So it's one of those things that can be abused. But look, the product is less than a year old. I think they have maybe less than 10 employees. They have a lot to learn, a lot to build, a lot to do, um, a lot of tests to experiment with. So, um, you know, it's don't let perfect be the enemy of the good is often the case for early stage companies. So I think they'll continue to iterate and make it a better experience. Uh, You and I were talking before we started taping the last time uh, we had spoken probably was when we actually physically saw each other at an industry event pre-pandemic outside of L.A. You talked about how you think Clubhouse, one of the reasons it took off the way it did was because we were all stuck at home and we weren't out at cocktail parties and dinners, etc. Once that world comes back, is that a problem for Clubhouse if those conditions aren't there and we can see each other in real life again? I don't think it's a problem. I think that the way that we communicate will continue to shift. Maybe it's the case we'll be on Clubhouse less. Um, Maybe it's the case some people will be on it more. Um, You know, I remember in the early days of Clubhouse, I had terrible insomnia. I was just very stressed out about a lot of things. And to this day, I have a bunch of friends. We call ourselves the Insomniacs Club. (laughs) And like, I know when I'm up from 2 to 4 a.m., I'll see my friend Shane Mack because he's always there too. So I feel like these things will shift. We'll go through, you know, different types of human behavior and scenarios over time. And, um, you know, maybe the time we're on Clubhouse is different. Maybe, you know, we're on there less, more. It'll change, but I don't think it's going to be a problem. Katie, last question. I'll go back to your Twitter experience. Uh, they have launched a, a rival of sorts called Spaces. Uh, Facebook hasn't announced a rival yet, but I don't think there's ever been a good social media idea that Facebook hasn't tried to copy at some point. Do you believe that kind of the legacy social media companies can compete with Clubhouse, maybe even beat it at its own game? You know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Um, I personally don't think um, that the bigger companies can actually also offer a social experience that is compelling, as compelling as Clubhouse. It is just a very native, um, comfortable behavior on Clubhouse. You know, I, you know, if Clubhouse, for example, started to add uh, stories, it would be a disaster. <laughs> so I don't think the world needs like so many of these different types of experiences. So I, I think Clubhouse has a really great shot at it. Katie Stanton, who you can follow on Clubhouse if you're in there, at Katie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Morgan Stanley is our sponsor of today's episode, but as always, sponsors don't dictate editorial content.
Welcome back. What we're watching today is Tesla, which announced that it's bought $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and that it'll begin accepting the cryptocurrency as payment for its cars, solar panels, and other products, making it the first automaker to do so. Why it matters for Bitcoin holders is that the price soared more than 14% on the news, topping $43,000 as of this taping. Why it matters for Tesla, other than the fact that it holds all that Bitcoin, is that the amount represents over 5% of its cash on hand and raises new questions about eccentric CEO Elon Musk, who spent the last few weeks encouraging his Twitter followers to buy cryptocurrencies, even adding the hashtag Bitcoin to his Twitter bio. We're also continuing to watch fallout from last Friday's news that global consulting giant McKinsey agreed to pay nearly $575 million to settle allegations by 49 states over its work with opioids maker Purdue Pharmaceuticals. In short, McKinsey was accused of helping to advise Purdue on how to, quote, turbocharge sales of the drug. And while it didn't actually make the opioids or market them, McKinsey's settlement does reflect how giving paid advice can also fall well afoul of the law. And finally, we are watching Orlean Peterson, an Idaho woman who recently won $200,000 on a lottery ticket, which is pretty good, but not as good as what happened the next day. She went into a different store, bought another lottery ticket, and won $300,000. What are the odds? Well, according to Idaho lottery officials, one in 282.5 million. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national kite flying day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.